Three Sundays in a Week by Edgar Allan Poe. You hard-headed, dunder-headed, obstinate, rusty, crusty, musty, fusty old savage, said I in fancy one afternoon to my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon, shaking my fist at him in imagination. Only in imagination. The fact is, some trivial discrepancy did exist just then between what I said and what I had not the courage to say between what I did and what I had half a mind to do. The old porpoise, as I opened the drawing-room door, was sitting with his feet upon the mantelpiece, and a bumper of port in his paw making strenuous efforts to accomplish the ditty. Remplis ton viera vide, vide ton vera playin. My dear uncle, said I, closing the door gently, and approaching him with the blandest of smiles, you are always so very kind and considerate, and have evinced your benevolence in so many, so very many ways, that— that— I feel I have only to suggest this little point to you once more to make sure of your full acquiescence. Here, said he. Good boy, go on. I am sure, my dearest uncle, you confounded old rascal, that you have no design, really, seriously, to oppose my union with Kate. This is merely a joke of yours, I know. Oh, oh, oh how very pleasant you are at times. <laughs> said he. "'Curse you, yes!' Uh, "'To be sure, of course, I knew you were jesting. "'Now, Uncle, all that Kate and myself wish at present "'is that you would oblige us with your advice, "'as, uh, as regards the time, you know, Uncle, in short, "'when will it be most convenient for yourself "'that the wedding shall, uh, shall come off, you know. "'Come off, you scoundrel! "'What do you mean by that? "'Better wait till it goes on!' Oh, 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 yeah. oh, 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 that's good. Oh, that's capital. Such a wit. Uh, uh, but all we want just now, you know, Uncle, is that you would indicate the time precisely. Ah, precisely. Yes, Uncle, that is, if it would be quite agreeable to yourself. Wouldn't it answer, Bobby, if I were to leave it at random some time within a year or so, for example, must I say precisely?' "'If you please, Uncle. Precisely. Well, then, uh, uh, Bobby, my boy, you're a fine fellow, aren't you? Uh, since you will have the exact time, I'll—well, I'll oblige you for once. Dear Uncle. Hush, sir!' Drowning my voice. "'I'll oblige you for once. You shall have my consent and the plum. We mustn't forget the plum. Uh, let me see. When shall it be?' "'Today's Sunday, isn't it? Well, then—' <laughs> "'You shall be married precisely, precisely now, mind, "'when three Sundays come together in a week. "'Do you hear me, sir? "'What are you gaping at? "'I say, you shall have Kate and her plum "'when three Sundays come together in a week. "'But not till then, you young scapegrace. "'Not till then, if I die for it. "'You know me, I'm a man of my word. "'Now be off!' "'Here he swallowed his bumper of port "'while I rushed from the room in despair.' A very fine old English gentleman was my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon. But unlike him of the song, he had his weak points. He was a little pursy, pompous, passionate, semicircular somebody with a red nose, a thick skull, a long purse, and a strong sense of his own consequence. With the best heart in the world, he contrived, through a predominant whim of contradiction, to earn for himself among those who only knew him superficially— the character of a curmudgeon. 
Like many excellent people, he seemed possessed with a spirit of tantalization which might easily, at a casual glance, have been mistaken for malevolence. To every request a positive no was his immediate answer. But in the end, in the long, long end, there were exceedingly a few requests which he refused. Against all attacks upon his purse he made the most sturdy defence, but the amount extorted from him at last was generally in direct ratio with the length of the siege and the stubbornness of the resistance. In charity no one gave more liberally or with a worse grace. For the fine arts, and especially for the belles letters, he entertained a profound contempt. With this he had been inspired by Casimir Perrier, whose pert little query, A quoi un poète est il bon? He was in the habit of quoting with a very droll pronunciation as the ne plus ultra of logical wit. Thus my own inkling for the muses had excited his entire displeasure. He assured me one day when I asked him for a new copy of Horace that the translation of Poeta Nascito Non Fit was a nasty poet for nothing fit, a remark which I took in high dudgeon. His repugnance to the humanities had also much increased of late by an accidental bias in favour of what he supposed to be natural science. Somebody had accosted him in the street, mistaking him for no lesser personage than Dr. Double L.D., the lecturer upon quack physics. This set him off at a tangent, and just at the epoch of this story, for story it is getting to be, after all, my grand-uncle Romgudgeon was accessible and pacific only upon points which happened to chime in with the caprioles of the hobby he was riding. For the rest he laughed with his arms and legs, and his politics were stubborn and easily understood. He thought, with hoarsely, that the people have nothing to do with the laws but to obey them. I had lived with the old gentleman all my life. My parents in dying had bequeathed me to him as a rich legacy. I believe the old villain loved me as his own child, nearly, if not quite as well as he loved Kate. But it was a dog's existence that he led me after all. From my first until my fifth, he obliged me with very regular floggings. From five to fifteen, he threatened me hourly with the house of correction. From fifteen to twenty, not a day passed in which he did not promise to cut me off with a shilling. I was a sad dog, it is true, but then it was a part of my nature, a point of my faith. In Kate, however, I had a firm friend, and I knew it. She was a good girl, and told me very sweetly that I might have her plum and all whenever I could badger my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon into the necessary consent. Poor girl! She was barely fifteen, and without this consent her little amount in the funds was not come-atable, until five immeasurable summers had dragged their slow length along. What then to do? At fifteen, or even at twenty-one, for I had now passed my fifth Olympiad, five years in prospect of very much the same as five hundred. In vain we besieged the old gentleman with importunities. Here was a piece de resistance, as Messieurs Oude and Careme would say, which suited his perverse fancy to a tea. It would have stifled the indignation of Job himself to see how much like an old mouser he behaved to us two poor wretched little mice. In his heart he wished for nothing more ardently than our union. He had made up his mind to this all along. In fact, he would have given ten thousand pounds from his own pocket. 
Kate's plum was her own, if he could have invented anything like an excuse for complying with our very natural wishes. But then we had been so imprudent as to broach the subject ourselves. Not to oppose it under any such circumstances, I sincerely believe, was not in his power. I have said already that he had his weak points, but in speaking of these I must not be understood as referring to his obstinacy, which was one of his strong points. Assurement, ce n'était pas sa foible. When I mention his weakness, I have allusion to a bizarre old womanish superstition which beset him. He was great in dreams, portents, et id genus omni of rigmarole. He was excessively punctilious, too, upon small points of honour, and after his own fashion was a man of his word beyond doubt. This was, in fact, one of his hobbies. The spirit of his vows he made no scruple of setting at naught, but the letter was a bond inviolable. Now, it was this latter peculiarity in his disposition of which Kate's ingenuity enabled us one fine day, not long after our interview in the dining-room, to take a very unexpected advantage, and, having thus, in the fashion of all modern bards and orators, exhausted in prolegomena all the time at my command, and nearly all the room at my disposal, I will sum up in a few words what constitutes the whole pith of the story. It happened then, so the fates ordered it, that among the naval acquaintances of my betrothed were two gentlemen who had just set foot upon the shores of England after a year's absence, each in foreign travel. In company with these gentlemen, my cousin and I, preconcertedly, paid Uncle Rumgudgeon a visit on the afternoon of Sunday, October the 10th, just three weeks after the memorable decision which had so cruelly defeated our hopes. For about half an hour— the conversation ran upon ordinary topics, but at last we contrived, quite naturally, to give it the following turn. Captain Pratt Well, I have been absent just one year. Just one year today as I live. Let me see. Yes, oh, uh, this is October the 10th. You remember, Mr. Rumgudgeon, I called this day here to bid you goodbye. And, by the way, it does seem something like a coincidence, does it not, that our friend Captain Smitherton here has been absent exactly a year also, a year today. Smitherton. Yes, uh, uh, just one year to a fraction. You will remember, Mr. Rumgudgeon, that I called with Captain Prattle on this very day last year to pay my parting respects. Yes, 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 I remember it very well, very queer indeed. Both of you gone just one year. A very strange coincidence, indeed. Just what Dr. Double L.D. would denominate an extraordinary concurrence of events. Dr. Dub... At this point, Kate interrupted. To be sure, Papa, it is something strange, but then Captain Pratt and Captain Smitherton didn't go altogether the same route. And that makes a difference, you know. I don't know any such thing, you hussy. How should I? I think it only makes the matter more remarkable. Dr. Double L.D., why, Papa? Captain Pratt went round Cape Horn, and Captain Smitherton doubled the Cape of Good Hope. Ah, precisely. The one went east and the other went west, you jade. And they both have gone quite round the world. Uh, by the by, uh, Dr. Double L.D., uh, Captain Pratt, uh, you must come and spend the evening with us tomorrow. You and Smitherton, uh, you can tell us all about your voyage, and we'll have a game of whist and... Whist, my dear fellow, you forget, tomorrow will be Sunday, some other evening. 
Oh, no, fie. Robert's not quite so bad as that. Today's Sunday. I beg both your pardons, but I can't be so much mistaken. I know tomorrow's Sunday because... Oh, what are you all thinking about? Wasn't yesterday Sunday, I should like to know? Yesterday, indeed. You're out. Ah, uh, today's Sunday, I say. Uh, don't I know? Oh, no. Uh, uh, tomorrow's uh, Sunday. You're all mad, every one of you. I'm as positive that yesterday was Sunday as I am that I sit upon this chair. <gasps> Kate jumped up eagerly. I see it, I see it all. Papa, this is a judgment upon you about... about you know what. Let me alone, and I'll explain it all in a minute. It's a very simple thing indeed. Captain Smitherton says that yesterday was Sunday, so it was. He's right. Cousin Bobby and Uncle and I say that today is Sunday, so it is. We are right. Captain Pratt maintains that tomorrow will be Sunday, so it will. He is right too. The fact is, we are all right, and thus three Sundays have come together in a week. After a pause, Captain Smitherton interrupted. By the by, Pratt, Kate has us completely. What fools we two are. Mr. Rumgudgeon, the matter stands thus. The earth, you know, is 24,000 miles in circumference. Now, this globe of the earth turns upon its own axis, revolves, spins round these 24,000 miles of extent, going from west to east in precisely 24 hours. Do you understand, Mr. Rumgudgeon? Eh, to be sure, to be sure. A Dr. Dub... Smitherton drowned out his voice. Well, sir, that is at the rate of 1,000 miles per hour. Now, suppose that I sail from this position 1,000 miles east. Of course, I anticipate the rising of the sun here at London by just one hour. I see the sun rise one hour before you do. Proceeding in the same direction yet another 1,000 miles, I anticipate the rising by two hours, another 1,000, and I anticipate it by three hours, and so on, until I go entirely round the globe and back to this spot, when having gone 24,000 miles east, I anticipate the rising of the London sun by no less than 24 hours. That is to say, I am at a day in advance of your time. Understand, eh? Ah, uh, but double L.D. Well, Captain Pratt, on the contrary, when he had sailed a thousand miles west of this position was an hour, and when he had sailed 24,000 miles west was 24 hours, or one day behind the time at London, thus with me. Eh? Yesterday was Sunday. Thus, with you, today is Sunday, and thus, with Pratt, tomorrow will be Sunday. And what is more, Mr. Rumgudgeon, it is positively clear that we are all right, for there can be no philosophical reason assigned why the idea one of us should have preference over that of the other. My eyes. Well, Kate. Well, Bobby, this is a judgment upon me, as you say. But I am a man of my word, mark that. You shall have a boy, plumb and all, when you please. Done up by Jove, three Sundays all in a row. I'll go and take Double LD's opinion upon that. The End of Three Sundays in a Week by Edgar Allan Poe Read by Rick Kistner for Lit to Go on the Web at fcit.usf.edu